Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about drinks. We'll be hearing how one innovator is making them healthier. We've created Europe's first matcha green tea energy drink. And the way that we have done that is by standardizing for the amount of caffeine, 80 milligrams, through matcha green tea, as well as 80 milligrams of L-theanine, which is an amino acid that negates all of the negative stimulatory effects of caffeine. And later, we'll learn how the bottles we use for them can be made in a more sustainable way. You don't have to have an ocean bottle to be a part of what we're building. Um, so we're really kind of opening up to, to everyone so that everyone can, can really make an impact on this big and global issue. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Marissa Poster is the co-founder of the matcha-based energy drinks company Perfect Ted. Having previously relied on coffee and energy drinks, Marissa and her co-founding team grew tired of the side effects and decided to create a healthier energy drink option. After a successful Kickstarter campaign to raise funds, they won a £50,000 investment on British TV show Dragon's Den, with Stephen Bartlett and Peter Jones each securing 5% equity for their stakes, after a successful pitch in which all five dragons were keen to do business. We'll get to how Marissa and her co-founders made the decision to go with Stephen and Peter a little later. But first, let's welcome her to Midori House. Marissa Poster, welcome. Um, Marissa, I want to start with your matcha journey, if you like. What was the inspiration behind Perfect Head? I started drinking matcha green tea in college. I have ADHD and anxiety, like many people do, and I was drinking tons of coffee and energy drinks to help me get through the long study days during uni, and I just could not function properly. I was suffering from jitters, crashes. My anxiety was incredibly heightened, and I knew there had to be a better way. A friend recommended I try it, and genuinely it changed my life because I felt energized, but without all of the negatives of caffeine. So I wasn't overstimulated. I didn't feel anxious, and I just felt like my best self. I'm about three coffees in, so I'm probably, well, I'm probably an exemplar. Maybe I need to, we could literally do this whilst we're recording. Why do you think it is, though, that we're so trapped in this dynamic particularly when it comes to coffee because here in this building i can we have our own coffee shop at monocle obviously but people are evangelical about it marissa why do you think that is is it just because it's so habit forming for sure i think it's so ingrained in our culture coffee drinking goes back hundreds and hundreds of years however matcha green tea goes back about 800 years in japan and it's so ingrained in their culture matcha to the japanese is like coffee to the english so i think we've been socialized to want to drink coffee from a young age and because it's the most i guess prevalent option available in cafes so i think as more alternatives become available, you'll slowly see people switching from coffee to alternatives. Okay, we're going to do... This is unusual for the entrepreneurs. We're going to do... This is my three-tap technique for opening cans. We're going to do a live tasting session. Here we go. You're already drinking yours, aren't you, Marissa? I am, I am. Oh, it is really delicious. Talk to me about the product. Once you've decided, look, I need to share this learning, this breakthrough that I've had with the wider community, how do you set about 
the formula, the ingredients, putting it all together. What's that? Presumably that's exciting, if a bit scary. <laughs> but what, how, how did it work? Absolutely. So we've created Europe's first matcha green tea energy drink. And the way that we have done that is by standardizing for the amount of caffeine, 80 milligrams, through matcha green tea, as well as 80 milligrams of L-theanine, which is an amino acid that negates all of the negative stimulatory effects of caffeine. And that is naturally abundant within matcha. But the process of putting it in the drinks, matcha is not the easiest ingredient to work with. It's not entirely soluble. So we have had to create a proprietary blending process in order to do so. But it gives us a barrier to entry within the space. And we feel we've created a product that is very resonant with the whole UK population because of the flavor profiles that we've accompanied the matcha with. So for instance, apple and raspberry is one of our best sellers. That's what we're we're drinking right now. Yes. So our audience can imagine the fun that we're having. Exactly. And I think those are two flavors that are quite familiar to people. But then we also have pineapple and yuzu. And yuzu is a fragrant Japanese citrus and it's a super exciting ingredient and it captures a lot of interest. So we also have pear ginger. And that is kind of like a healthier ginger beer. So I think by accompanying matcha with flavors that are both familiar yet exciting has also been key in attracting customers. Uh, And tell me about how you imagine this might travel, not to get ahead of ourselves, but you've already mentioned the influences from around the world and trying to address these sort of peculiar UK proclivities, whether that's coffee or tea drinking. Do you feel you've got a product, a recipe, a kind of a concept, I guess, that could and maybe will travel with ease? Or do you always have to be careful about market to market? There's always different specificities you have to think about. Absolutely. I think there will always be specificities. However, we are trading in about nine different countries at this point. And I think the fact that our brand is a medium to spread positive energy and the way that we do that is through our products. I think our message really is resonant with a global population, not just the Mm. UK one. And I think so many people suffer with anxiety, ADHD and other neurodiverse conditions across the world that this would be a more appealing type of caffeine for so many. So I think it can definitely transcend across different populations. And that's interesting because lots of the entrepreneurs that we've been speaking to in the last two, three years, of course, one of the sort of attendant issues has been the pandemic and dealing with that, often people launching and they're like, our big launch was March 2020. And then who knew? What's really interesting is, do you think there's been a different degree of introspection, a different degree of narrative around health and well-being, different neurodiverse conditions, a much more deep interest in people's mental health, partly because of the pandemic. But has that prompted a conversation that actually means this is a much better landscape for this kind of product, your kind of approach to go into? Are you aware of that? Do you think, would would you agree with that reading? Absolutely. I would agree with that completely. I think the pandemic really allowed people to develop a more health conscious approach to their lifestyles and understand more the connection between what they're putting in their bodies and how it's making them feel both Mm. physically and mentally. And I think that there is a general heightened awareness around mental health 
health and mental health conditions. And people are trying to use food as medicine to not just only remedy physical ailments, but mental ones. And so I think that there is this massive appeal in functional ingredients like matcha because people are really seeing the benefits to both their physical and mental health now. I also think people are conscious that category leaders, I won't mention who, but they might not have the healthiest ingredients within their recipes. And what is that doing to their bodies? What is that doing to their minds? I think people are much more aware. Uh, without putting you on the spot there, Marissa, you, you started it. Um, <laughs> category leaders. How do you go about addressing that? Because it is the sort of the winged elephant in the room. <laughs> it's really interesting. I guess when you were seeking backers and collaborators and now as you expand and your, and your market purchase has developed, how, how do you deal with that big competitor, the, the market leader? <laughs> do you have to sort of, in a sense, try and have a discipline that they're not there? Or do you have to have some fun with it? Have you heard from them? What do they think? <laughs> Tell me a bit about it, because it is this funny sort of, I mean, they're definitely there. They're yeah. doing their thing. Tell me about it. We are acknowledging that they are definitely <laughs> there. They're hard to miss. However, I think a lot of consumers, they're now seeing our drinks available next to the category leaders. And I think there is a level of interest there that it's a new product. It obviously is providing the same amount of caffeine. So we actually have the same amount of caffeine as the category leader, but it's just a different caffeination experience. And I think once people have been trying it, they are continually buying it and forming it as a daily habit in their lives. But we are keenly aware that they are still the category leader. We have a lot of work to do, but they have filled a need for quite some time and we're coming after them. Uh, that's good. We like that kind of ambition. And I must say, just from kind of blind taste, well, it wasn't blind taste because I can see the product, but uh, I can't enjoy the category leader. Uh, but this does drink very well. Let's talk a bit then about the early steps to build the business, your financing model. And I guess some people in this country might be aware of your engagement with some high profile backers and partners and this kind of thing. But to take us back because you there was a big uh, crowdfunding, which was very successful. Sort of track us through how that process has worked. So we actually launched the brand on Kickstarter in April of 2021. And if you're not familiar with Kickstarter, it is a almost a pre-sales platform. And so you're able to really test ideas, see if there's interest. And the beauty of it is that you're able to use those funds to create the product in advance. So we were able to reach our funding goal of £10,000, which was not a lot of money in the grand scheme of building a business. Obviously, it's a lot of money, but startup costs are quite a lot. So that was pretty fantastic. It showed that there was interest for the product. From there, we were able to put our savings and money from family and friends into growing the business. And that sustained us until we went on to Dragon's Den. We received offers from all five dragons and accepted investment from Stephen Bartlett and Peter Jones. And we're super exciting to be working with such esteemed investors and amazing people. Uh, now, regular viewers of that show in this country will be cross with me if I don't ask. How do you choose? Is it one of these things where you've made up your mind before who you'd like to work with and then it's, it's a bit like the, the machine comes up, all your, all your numbers are in, you can take your pick? Or were you moved on the day by 
specifically what Stephen and Peter said? Tell me about that. I don't know if listeners would know this, but the 13 minutes that you see on television isn't the entire pitch. I mean, we were in there for an hour and a half, and I think some of the actual offerings that Stephen and Peter brought to the table were so appealing compared to the other dragons. But we knew in advance that to partner with Peter, who has such an incredible distribution network, as well as Stephen, who is king of branding and he's a marketing genius we just knew that they were the perfect fits for our brand so we never expected to get offers from all five of them we were hoping that peter and stephen would bite and they did so that's who we went with and and tell me does that then change materially the plans obviously the co-founding team very clear ambitions had all of the entrepreneurial prerequisites and a certain appetite for risk-taking, happy to, to, to work hard and so forth. But once you get those kinds of collaborations, once you see this kind of growth, does it change the ambition? Do you have to recalibrate constantly? What's that like? I think we've always had a northern star of really being able to compete with the category leader on an equal playing field. And that has not changed since we've started the business. I actually listened to your interview with the founder of Proper Corn and something that she had mentioned really resonated with me and something that we also experienced as a brand. We had so many people telling us, start out in farmer's markets, see if it gets traction, don't think about Tesco. But we knew from the very beginning that if we wanted to make a real impact and help people as much as we could, we had to gain a really wide scale of distribution. And one of the best ways of doing that is through gaining distribution through the largest grocer. So our growth ambitions have not changed. Um, in fact, we feel even more galvanized now to actually execute on that mission and to have the backing and support of these incredible partners will only help us get there even sooner. I guess if you're trying to introduce to the world a, a consequential product that can actually shift the needle on behaviours, meaningfully consumer behaviours, you have to have ambition on that scale, right? And you need those partners who can deliver that that scale. How do you keep in touch, though, with other principles of doing business the right way, your ethics, clearly an interest in sustainability and so forth? I know you're part of the 1% for the Planet initiative. Tell us about some of these devices and principles that inform the day-to-day -day function of the whole business. So sustainability is really at our core of our business as well. I mean, we are 1% for the Planet partners, meaning we donate 1% of our annual revenues to Planet and Environment-related foundations and endeavors. One thing that is really important to us is we work directly with our farms in Japan. And what that does, it ensures fair treatment of the farmers, ensures that there are proper farming conditions, that they're paid and compensated fairly. And it also allows them to be compensated more because we're not paying middlemen and there aren't many more people taking a cut. So we're really focused on making sure that those local communities are treated fairly and that we have the best conditions to be partnering with, with the people who are helping us bring this product to market. Let's talk a bit about your relationship with the business. Some people talk about how, how they feel like they're almost sort of married to their job. You also have just learned you are going to be married to your co-founder, yeah. which is obviously very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. This is a bit of a scoop for us. <laughs> but, but tell me about that because people say, again, there's all these cliches, you know, don't work with, you know, with children with animals, don't work with families. And I often ask, founder couples who are also partners in their personal lives 
are you mad? I, I think lots of people imagine trying to do these things with their spouse. Tell me a bit about the dynamic between you guys. What, how does that team work? My two co-founders are Levi and Teddy. Levi is my now fiancé, and Teddy is my future brother-in-law and best friend. And so we're one big happy family business, and we also live together to make it even more complex and fun. People think we're crazy. I think we definitely <laughs> have to... That's going to be my next question, actually, yeah. <laughs> People don't... I think they're right. We are crazy, but we love it. I think it does give us a competitive edge because, one, our communication is just so enhanced. I think we all know each other so well, and we're able to be so open and honest and upfront, respectfully. And that allows us to move faster because there are less politics involved. I think we can just communicate, say it as it is again, respectfully and kind. But I do think there has to be an element of craziness involved. <laughs> and we try to set some ground rules in place. Don't talk about work on a date night, that kind of stuff. But ultimately, you're never going to completely 100% follow that. That's tricky. Is that when the sort of weekend family lunch table is also kind of like the boardroom table? Exactly. It's, it's tricky. But that is interesting. And a few of the founders we've spoken to on this show have talked about that that shorthand, there's a directness, which I think is scary in the abstract, but actually it can be really efficient and mm -hmm. effective if you do it the right way. As the business grows and scales, how does the division of labor amongst you guys, mm -hmm. how do you see that shaping up? Because presumably with all businesses, as they become more successful, you have to delegate increasingly. Mm -hmm. You might have to bring in some other talents in areas where you feel you need additional support. Do you think you, the th between the three of you, you'll be mm -hmm. good at loosening the reins where necessary, empowering other people? Have you talked about what that process might look like? Absolutely. And we've already started to do that. So we have an incredible head of sales, a head of operations, and we're actually hiring right now for a creative director and a marketing generalist. And we have a team of six already, um, which is exciting. But I think delegation, when you're trying to build a business to the scale that we are trying to, is vital. It's absolutely necessary. And we have already started to do that. Of course, it's a little bit anxiety inducing to give the reins to other people, but we've been able to build an incredible team. And actually, one thing that I was thinking about coming into this was if I could give any entrepreneur a piece of advice is it's to build an amazing team of people who you trust, of people who love the brand, of people who are really best in class at what they do. And I think the fact that we've been able to find that kind of talent and people who we love to work with and are just genuinely solid, decent people, it gives us confidence that they know what they're doing. They will treat the brand as it's their own. And we're happy to embolden them and give them the autonomy to do their work. And they do it great. And what about a question you've probably heard me asking other leaders of the businesses we've featured on this program before about time horizons and how you plan. And a lot of the entrepreneurs say, look, you know, you have to take each day as it comes. Most of the entrepreneurs I speak to are details people. So every day there's something. But you have to also have these longer term time horizons. If you're talking to the Stevens and Peters of this world, they'll want to know where you're going to be in three years, five years. How do you and the rest of the leadership team decide how to prioritize the long-term plans, those big goals, and then the daily detail, which defines the success in the short term. Are those things in opposition for you, or do you think you can actually manage them all fairly elegantly? Right. I think you're always going to have the daily trials and tribulations come about, and that's always difficult to deal with. But 
long-term vision is always so important and something that you always need to come back to. I think for us, we have a leadership meeting every week where we don't discuss anything short-term. It's all long-term planning, all looking at our accounts, um, our projections, updating our cash flow forecasts, and making sure that we're operating as planned. Opportunities will arise that will change your forecast. I mean, when we found out we were getting Tesco back in November, which was really not a long time ago, we had no idea what our business was going to really look like six months from then. And it totally changed overnight. So you will have opportunities arise. Equally, I'm sure there will be times when we might lose business because that is just a result of doing business um, sometimes. Sometimes partners go under. Maybe you're not meeting expectations. Luckily, we have not had that problem. But who knows? You never really know. Just finally, Marissa, what's most exciting that you're looking forward to in terms of scale, other announcements? We probably can't tap you for like specific exclusives or anything like that, but we're talking, you know, spring, nudging towards summer here in the UK. What were kind of the key markers in the diary, things you're most looking forward to? Really looking forward to doubling down with Stephen and his amazing team on creating incredible content, doing some brand building activities, and just continuing to build a really incredible brand, achieving our mission of spreading positive energy and building a loyal community of people who want to feel their best selves. That was Marissa Poster, the co-founder and chief energy officer of Perfect Ted. To learn more about their various matcha energy products, head on over to perfectted.com. Will Pearson and Nick Doman are two entrepreneurs interested in the intersection of business, social impact and environmental conservation. As the co-founders and joint CEOs of Ocean Bottle, they make reusable water bottles that are sweat-free, leak-free and dishwasher safe. Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, caught up with the pair in Davos in Switzerland to talk about their vision and how they navigate the busy reusable water bottle space. Tom started out by asking Will about the Ocean Bottle brand story. So simply put, Ocean Bottle exists to enable individuals and organisations to make a global impact on the plastic crisis. We do that by funding plastic collection projects around the world. We make the world's most needed reusable bottle and for every one we fund a collection of a thousand plastic bottles and weights. To date we've prevented almost 8 million kilograms of plastic from entering the ocean, about 700 million plastic bottles, uh, which would yeah, lap the equator almost four times if you put them end to end. I have a reusable bottle. I've had the same one for eight years. I've not picked up another new one. Is the market calling for another reusable bottle? That's a great question. I think that's a question that people asked us right at the beginning. We ask ourselves. We ask ourselves, you know, is this something that we should be bringing? Is this something the world needs? And I think it was a categorical yes. I think that, well, one thing that we found with reusable bottles that we saw as the biggest thing that we could disrupt in terms of product design was that no bottle could be put in the dishwasher. There's no insulated bottle that you can put in the dishwasher. So bottles would start smelling after six to 12 months and there's nothing you could do about it and you had to throw it away. So we wanted to build a bottle that was designed for life and would be able to last as long as you needed it and wanted it to which, you know, there are plenty of bottles out there that can do that as well. And we tell people, if you've got a bottle that, you've, that works, don't buy ours. I mean, don't, don't just buy another bottle just for the sake of it. Um, but we really wanted to prove that sustainable design was about longevity. And we wanted to design something new, innovative, and one that had a real positive impact on the world. 
and not just doing less bad because sustainability is all about doing less bad for the environment but we wanted to design something that yes was incredibly sustainable but also a product that did positive impact in the world and collected a thousand plastic bottles in weight so we wanted to make sure that every purchase of our bottle uh, was a net positive on on the world you don't have to have an ocean bottle to be a part of what we're building. So we're really kind of opening it up to everyone so that everyone can really make an impact on this big and global issue. This is the thing about your brand. You're very open and honest. You're saying, don't buy us if you've got a product that works. You're also very honest about your carbon footprint. You do have one and you do tell people. Why is that? The uh, carbon footprint at the moment is sort of equivalent to about two cartons of milk, of dairy milk. There is a footprint there, but if you actually use the product a few times you know, you're, you're having an immediate impact and actually just by refilling you're cutting emissions by almost 98% compared to buying bottled and, and shipped water so yeah there's you know huge environmental positive benefits of, of using the product as well. To be honest every brand needs to be upfront about it because it's what keeps you honest we need to be talking about it more and we need to be sharing best practice you know we don't care if another bottle brand came to us and said how did you get your carbon footprint so low we would tell them in a heartbeat we don't want to keep this to ourselves. So we want to shout about it and make sure that everyone's aware and be honest about our shortcomings and where we're going, what we're doing that's innovative and that's really taking that carbon footprint down. So this is your opportunity to name drop. Don't hold back. People love your product. I've seen people like Pierre Gasly brandishing his bottle arriving at Miami airport. Who else is loving your brand at the moment? Well, we're going to get you on board, obviously, Tom. So you'll be right up there in our top list of celebrities. Our first exciting person was Ed Sheeran. And Nick did that whole partnership, actually. I think at the beginning, when we were doing absolutely everything, we were calling every studio, every management agency, every agent in town, both in London and in, um, in L.A., you just trying to get into... You producer know, of James Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we called pretty much everyone. Um, and it was so important for us at that time to get it into people's hands that had influence and that continues to be a part of it today but also you know the point is it's yeah it is a product for everyone it's something to everyone is was the idea which is a nightmare if you're going to try and have a target audience and really target what you're doing but we really think that it can be something for everyone yeah i think we have been trying to find a target audience for so long trying to find people who have influence in those markets but what we found is we've got appeal to everyone there is no, we've looked at the data and there is no obvious trend. Everyone buys ocean bottles all over the UK, all over the world, every age group, every demographic. And that's what's really exciting about what we do. Is we don't have to pick and choose who we're speaking to. It's sort of something to everyone. That was Will Pearson and Nick Doman, the founders of Ocean Bottle, in conversation with Monocle's Tom Webb. And you can find out more about what Will and Nick do at oceanbottle.co. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out. In the meantime, for Eureka, that's coming your way on Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can also subscribe to Monocle magazine and enjoy more about better businesses every month. You can follow us and catch up with the archive of past shows via your preferred podcast platform. To get in touch, write to Laura. She's on LRK at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>